want to ask you first to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And then we'll get to 1 Peter. Good morning. Hey, all you that are in the front section, look behind you. See all those people who came late? See all those people back there came late? <laughs> all right. Well, I'm glad you're here late. It's always better to come late than not come at all, correct? So you come 45 minutes late, we want you here. But try and come early. Come on, people. I mean, golly. These, what are we going to do? I don't know. It's, I, th- I think it's over with. <laughs> anyway. Do I have three services? Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> hey, I wanna, I'm going to do a mini sermon for a second, and so just bear with me. Um, and this is to all of us, and some of you may know about this. Um, some of you may not know about it. You know, we see national headlines all the time about things that happen in school and things of that nature, and, and they just kind of have always been away from us. Um, But on Friday, um, in case you did not hear, a student at McKinney North High School um, brought a gun to school. And uh, regardless of what you hear out there, there's no indication at this point in time that he meant to do anything more. um, But eventually, um, he shot himself and committed suicide in a classroom. He was by himself, but um, they had gotten a tip um, about this. And, And this is what we hear about other places is come to our city and and uh, my daughter graduates uh, this coming Friday from there and luckily we let her skip school on Friday but some of our students part of our church they were at school um, on Friday and and so I just I wanted to I wanted to say a word to the children and the students and I think this is is, is also a word for us adults this life is going to bring some dark moments in our life where it seems like is there an out from this Am I going to get through this? And I just want to say to you today, you will get through it. Nothing stays forever. Um, And so if you get to a really dark, difficult place, I just want to remind you that you need to reach out and reach out to people who um, have strength and are going to encourage you to do the right thing. And so I just just wanted to say that word because it's it's come to our city. It came to our city on Friday. Um, It came to our community. It came to... Um, a school where some of our kids um, go. And so just kids, there's not anything that is too hard in life that you're not going to be able to get through it, that you need to reach out um, and, and, and get some support. So I wanted to say that today. Our God reigns on a throne. Uh, this thing right here, what happened on this thing, this symbol, was about bearing all that so that we wouldn't have to bear all of that trouble. And so I just wanted to to speak that this morning and remind us this morning of that and just would encourage you um, just to pray for all, the, all, of our, all of our schools and the reality of, of what's there. We've talked about this uh, in the last several years. We have reached a place in our country where things have turned so bad in the rejection of God and rejection of His standards that the fruit of that is being manifested itself in our communities, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, and all those things. And, and, it's, and, and we're living in a critical time for us as believers that we would walk in what we just sang about, that God is great, and to live in such a way that demonstrates that so that, that people who are really wrestling with, should I live or should I die, um, would be able to see that God transforms people. 
and he empowers people. So can we pray and then we'll get into God's word. Um, God, <clears throat> we live in a day where uh, we know this. Um, we are desperate for you to move. Um, we know that you speak. You have spoken to us in your word. You've given us your word. But Lord, we live in a day where um, heartache and darkness and um, frustration and and seeming to be a never-ending, how do I get out of this? It just seems to permeate our culture. But the cross is about redemption. The cross is about reconciliation. The cross is about us not having to remain where we are, but we can find freedom. And so I want to pray for those who are at a place of darkness and struggle, that, Lord, they would be encouraged today, that, um, that they have people here in this body who... We'll talk, we'll pray, whatever the case may be. And Lord, I just pray for our nation, pray for our leaders, pray for our school system tomorrow, pray for the leadership at McKinney North tomorrow, who will um, undoubtedly have to talk about a number of different things, and they're supposed to be doing finals and and all the conversation that that will be connected with that. So I pray for the administration tomorrow. Speak to us now in this moment here in the room. In your great name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, we are talking last week and this week about marriage. And particularly, not really in a talking about Christian marriage in regard to a husband and wife who are both believers. But Peter deals with a very unique topic that is relevant today, but it was very relevant in the first century. And by way of reminder, in case you weren't here last week... As the gospel began to go forth into the world from Israel and from Jerusalem, as, as they took the gospel out and churches were started, one of the realities that began to happen was this, is that the gospel came to cities and, and it came to married couples, but it seems to be, based on Paul's writing and Peter's writing, that many wives throughout the Roman Empire came to faith in Christ But their husband never did. And these wives are asking the question, okay, I've become a believer. I've come to know Jesus as my Savior. I've shared this with my husband. Others have shared this with my husband. And he has continued to reject the gospel. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And we looked last week that that this word... uh, rejection that do not obey is is a careful inspection of the gospel so these husbands inspected the gospel heard it read it and decided no we want our greek and roman gods and i'm not going to come to faith in jesus and so all over the roman empire where church has been planted by um, the believers there were wives and congregations saying how do i relate to how do i win my spouse who ridicules my faith um, doesn't want to believe it or is okay with my faith but is still rejecting it. How do I deal with that? And so we are walking through those things. So last week we looked at what was the wife's role who was married to a non-believing husband? What, what did God call her to do in the midst of that with the aim of winning her husband? Today we will deal with what does a husband do who has a wife who is not a believer. And so um, I want to give, before we kind of get into the text this morning, just a little bit of reminder uh, to kind of catch us up. And if you and I were to say today, what makes a strong marriage? What are the key components of that? Is it communication? Is it love? Is it time? Is it spiritual togetherness? And I believe that each of those are very important. 
But I think foundationally, according to the Scripture, and we see this true throughout our nation, we see it true in other places, is that one of the key things in a marriage is to have a husband and a wife who know God and are walking with God if that is a marriage that is not a mixed marriage, but where both believers are there. But I believe with both of those, whether you have a believing spouse or non-believing spouse, I've seen this to be true, that the husband is the key to the family. And we see this in certain segments of our society today. doesn't mean the wife is diminished at all, but God has designed the role of the family that if the husband will walk with God and he will be a biblical man and he will walk in God's truth, then his life has a dramatic impact in the family in the culture, in the community, in a school system, whatever the case may be. There are segments of our society where men have literally been removed and they have gone and they have fled from that. And the devastating result of that over decades now is great trouble for the children because of the instability that brings. And so I want to set forth in the very beginning this morning the critical nature of a family having a husband who walks with God. Now the reality is is that, that that is not always the case. And so sometimes it is a wife who is carrying this spiritual leadership in the marriage and in the family. Sometimes it is just the man who's carrying that because the wife is unbelieving. But I'm so thankful, and I hope you are as well, that I love that the Bible addresses some of the nuances of our lives and the difficult things and kind of you know gives us some, some really specific um, direction in regard to a number of these things. So I want look with me first, because first of all, this morning, I want to remind us of something we talked about last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 through 18. And I want to talk about, just for a moment, wise counsel for those who are not married. This is for children who one day maybe are going to be married. Trace, are you going to get married one day? Hopefully. Okay, <laughs> no. Some of you girls, they're first grade, kindergarten, you're going to get married one day. You need to start thinking now, at your age, what kind of marriage does God want me to have and what do I need to do now, even though I'm in second grade, to live the kind of life, to be ready that I can be the greatest wife that I can be and the greatest husband that I can be. And one of the best foundational counsels that I can give this morning is this, is that if you are a believer and you are single, and you have a desire to be married, the counsel from Scripture is, do not marry an unbeliever. The Bible calls that unequally yoked. And we talked last week, and just want to remind us this morning, how does someone become unequally yoked, married to someone who's not a believer? Well, one of the ways is simply this, is that you've got two people who get married, and none of them are a believer, and somewhere along the way in the marriage, somebody shares Christ with that person. They come to faith, And they share with their wife or their husband who's not a believer. And they reject the gospel. And you've got a marriage now where there is a believer and a non-believer. And it's not one of those things where you walked into the marriage not thinking about God's counsel because you didn't know God at the time and you weren't a believer. But now you're in that setting. And so we've talked last week and we'll talk this week about that. And then there's another case. And this case is is a difficult one because there are some marriages where there is a believing spouse and a non-believing spouse, and that marriage has come about because that believing spouse ignored counsel of Scripture, ignored counsel of church leadership, 
of Christian parents, of Christian friends who said, do not marry, do not date, do not marry someone who is not a believer. And so that is kind of the setting that kind of brings this about. And regardless of how you arrive, that God has in His Word some counsel in regard to this. But I want to say something to the younger generation. Everybody sit up. Sit up. Andrew, Trey, sit up. All right. Isaac, are you listening to me, Isaac? All right, listen. <clears throat> if you want a family that's going to start off aiming at the truth and the power of God and walking God's ways, here's what I'm going to say to you, kids and students, this morning. Never date someone who is not aiming for walking with God and knowing God and does not know God. Don't rush this. Trust God's leadership and do not marry someone, do not even date someone who does not know who Jesus is because you will avoid yourself of, of, of having this thing called unequally yoked, of having you're wanting the family to go one direction, but the other person is wanting the family to go into another direction. Let's look at the text. Let's look what it says, Second Corinthians 6.14. I just want to remind us of this this morning. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Yoke is an agricultural term. It's a picture of two oxen. There's a wooden thing, and they are connected together and the farmer is trying to plow a straight line in a row so that they can grow the crops, that they're not growing all together, but there's a line, there's a distinction that's there. But if one of those oxen decides, I don't want to go in a straight line, I want to go this way, or I want to eat, or I want to I do this, then the farmer cannot move in a direction, move what, what he's trying to accomplish. And this, this is the counsel of Scripture. Do not yoke yourselves. I'll say this. This is also counsel in regard to best friends. That if you're a student today and you've got a best friend that maybe does not walk with the Lord, you will, when you get together, you're not going to talk about the Lord. And you need to build people in your life, children and students. And that goes for us adults as well. We need people in our lives that we are yoked together with an understanding of who God is so that we're not being pulled because you will eventually, if you're yoked together with an unbeliever, you will be a little bit pulled maybe in an attitude, maybe a perspective, maybe a worldview. You will be pulled away from the truth of God if you're yoked in that relationship. Now, some of us in the room today are married to spouses who are rejecting the gospel and you're yoked in that way. And I want to say this to you this morning. God does some unbelievable things in mixed marriages. Some beautiful things. Love can be present in that. Faithful commitment until death parts you can be a part of that reality. But the aim, according to the teaching of Scripture that we'll see here in a moment, 
is that your spouse who doesn't know Jesus would eventually come to know Jesus. And there's a great call upon our lives in regard to that. Before we move on to 1 Peter, do you remember Samson in the Old Testament? You know what eventually was his downfall? Was being unequally yoked with women. His fiance, the first woman he tried to marry, um, was not a Jewish Israelite. And it caused quite a bit of problem later on as he's kind of further drifting away from the Lord. Uh, he spends the night with a prostitute in a town. The men of the city find out that he's there and uh, she kind of spills the beans and they come to kind of get him. But he has snuck out during the night and eventually darkness comes in Samson's life because he spends too much time with an unbeliever named Delilah who manipulated him and tried to get him. And so the counsel of Scripture is, do not move in that direction. Marry someone who is a believer if you are single. All right, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. See, that's, that's two sermons, now the third sermon, all right? You ready, Kelly? Now it's time for the third sermon this morning, all right? 1 <clears throat> Peter Chapter 3, let's just look at all of it together, 1 through 7. We'll see what was talked about last week. And secondly, this morning, I just want to talk about the reality of submission because there's a call of submission to the wife. There's a call of submission to the husband. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, um, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is how the holy women of old, or not old, but holy women back, back in those days, hoped in God, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham and calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Verse 7, here's the counsel to the husband. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So let's talk about this point as we begin to walk through the text this morning. So there's a reality we talked last week that God has designed roles by his infinite wisdom for how the family should function. So the husband, we'll see today, there's a submission that is upon his life. There's a mutual submission for the husband and the wife with one another. But the wife is called in God's infinite design within the family, whether the husband is a believer or he is not a believer. The counsel is both that the wife submits to the leadership, makes herself subject to the leadership of her husband. Now this counsel is not one that says this, this happens because women aren't smart. They don't know how to run a family. They don't know how to run a business. It has nothing to do with 
superiority or inferiority. It has nothing to do with that. And we've talked in these days, sometimes in a marriage, or a lot of times in the marriage, the wife is the smarter person. Um, she's more gifted. She maybe have more education, whatever the case may be. So it's not one of those things that says women are so inferior that they have to have a man. It's not that. God just says this. Listen, I've designed things in this way that I am wanting the man, the husband, under my leadership to follow me in my word. He is to lead as a servant leader, willing to lay his life down for the family. And I've asked the wife to follow my leadership in my infinite design that, that you would submit to the leadership of your husband as he walks with me. And so last week we talked about that there's a call upon the wife who has a husband that does not know God, that she would accept the role that God has given to her, that she would submit to her husband. And again, the submission doesn't mean inferiority. It is to be given to the wife because God has asked it. And it is submission is not to be demanded by the husband. There is to be a mutual submission to one another. And so the wife says, okay, God, you've designed this. I'm going to trust what you say. And the husband's not to say, okay, I'm demanding that you don't talk anymore, and you just do what I say. That's not how God has designed marriage. Try that and see how well it goes. It doesn't work well. Um, we've made mistakes by ignoring God's counsel, all of us, to learn some things. So God, last week, little Peter writes, and he says, listen, listen, accept the role in the marriage. And then he tells the wife this, your aim is you want to win them to faith, and you're going to win them to faith By godliness, that's what he says. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, without the wife preaching and constantly um, saying things that that by her life she just says, okay, God, God, I'm submitting to you. Spirit, I'm submitting to you. Jesus, I'm setting you before me. I'm living for you. Transform me because I want to be so passionate for you that I live in such a way that my husband sees that I've been transformed by this one that I claim to know and the one that I know who is Jesus. And so the call from Peter says, listen, aim to win your lost husband by godliness, by your actions, not over clever arguments. That's going to be the key. What he t- and thirdly, last week, he said this, listen, don't focus on the outward adornment. Don't think to yourself, if I just looked better, if I had better clothing or if I dressed better, if my hair was better, then my husband who doesn't know Jesus, that's going to work on his heart. That will appeal to his fleshly realities, and that's okay for that because it's a husband and wife, but that's not going to change his heart. But what's going to change his heart is this. He says, but let your adorning not be external, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's eyes, it says, is precious. God values that reality. And then he closed last week of saying, wives, there is a model for you, and that is to look at someone like Sarah of the Old Testament. And I talked about that this last week, but people like Twyla weren't here. And so Twyla needs to hear some things because Brittany told me that Twyla needs to hear some things. Okay? You can talk to Brittany, okay? Yeah, I know that y'all are sitting right here, okay? And I joked last week this, if you wives would just call us Lord, it would fix everything. Like Sarah called Abraham Lord. That would fix a lot of things. Actually, it probably really wouldn't. But anyway, this word was a term of just saying to Abraham, I'm trusting God. 
I'm trusting God with this man that you have given me, Abraham. And, and I talked last week, and I think it's, point, it's, it's important to point out again, because some people say, well, yeah, if I had a husband like Abraham, my life would be better. You don't know my husband. And I just would remind you and I, from last week to this week, Abraham was not always the greatest man. Twice, once in Egypt and once in Philistia, he passed off his wife as his sister, and she was put into the harem of the leader of that country. So he was not always the best decision maker in regard to things. And so, so it's important for us about submission that the wife submits to the leadership of the husband. Well, what does it say? Let's now look at the husband. It's time to be. Randy needs some help, doesn't he, Twyla? Okay, all right, here we go. Here's what the text says. Look at verse 7 again. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This phrase, likewise, points back to what's been talked about all the way back in chapter 2, verse 13. We are to, as a believer, submit to government. We are, as a believer, submit to our boss in the workplace. The wife is to submit to the husband by God's design, and the husband is to submit mutually to the wife, but ultimately to God to be the leader and the spiritual leader of the family. So there is a call. In every aspect of relationships that a believer has, we all have to deal with government, we all have to deal with the workplace, and we all have to deal with the family. There's a call to submission. Everybody has this call to submission. And ultimately for the husband, his call to submission is this, is I'm submitting to God in the role that God has designed for the husband who is a believer, to trust God in His Word and to walk and to lead my family that points the family to God. The word submit literally means, it's a military term, it means to take one's proper place in an orderly way and this is the way that God has designed this. We know this from Paul's writing in Ephesians chapter 5 that God has called the husband to love the wife. You may find this interesting. I found this interesting um, this week is I'd never noted this before. There's nowhere in Scripture where the wife is commanded to love her husband. But the husband, five times, is commanded four in Ephesians 5, and then once in the book of Colossians when Paul writes to that church, is commanded to love the wife. This is, listen to me, man. This is an imperative whether you have a believing spouse or non-believing spouse. The call and the mandate from Scripture is this, is that you and I would love our wives. This phrase in Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives, it's in the present tense that means this. This is a daily thing. You love your wife today. You love your wife today. It is also in the middle voice that means this. This is a choice that you make because you know God has commanded this. So husbands, we love our wives. If you're a student today, you're going to get married one day. God's called upon you from the moment you say I do on a platform like this is you are to love your wife when you don't feel it, when she's being ornery or when she's being good or when you're being ornery, whatever the case may be, it says this, you are commanded, we are commanded to love our wives and Christ's 
love was a sacrificial love. Paul said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. So Peter is saying this, husbands who are in submission to God and trusting God in the role that they are to be the leader, they will be men and husbands who will be loving and serving their wives. That will mark their lives. So if you're a teenage girl in here this morning, you ought to watch a guy that you may be interested in. Does he love and serve his mom? Is he willing to speak to her with respect? And if he does, that is likely how he is going to treat you and love you and serve you and be in a relationship with you if you eventually one day move to a place of being married. So here is the call to husbands and wives, mutually submissive to one another. But then when it begins to work its way out, the husband's role is to lead the family by submitting to the lordship and leadership of Christ, laying his life down and living as an example of who Jesus is before a believing spouse or a non-believing spouse. And the wife submitting to God, trust God's role to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to submit to your plan as I submit to the leadership of my husband. Let's walk now about the husband's responsibility to an unbelieving spouse, and let's see what the Scripture has to say about this. And before we do that, just want to say a couple of words. We live in a day where long-term commitment is almost gone. It's It's just almost gone. We see it. We see it in regard to, to marriage. Um, we see it in regard to job. We see it in regard to even church life. And it just seems as if there's not a long-term mindset about I'm just going to be I'm going to be committed and I'm going to learn to I'm going to learn to be committed to things. And and as we as we have a long-term mindset with our marriages and other things of, of that nature, here's what happens: we learn perseverance. We learn how you got to work through things. And sometimes you just you stay, okay, I look across this room, some of us have been married, how, how long y'all been married, Palmers? 37 years. Pam and I in a few weeks will be 30 years. Hubbard's how long? 38. Long time. 50? 50 with the Needhams. Carol, how long were y'all married? Almost 47 years. You don't get, Mike, how long, Mike? 47. You don't live that long together with two perfect people. Those are two imperfect people. And you have a marriage last that long because you persevere and you work through things, correct? Rick's been difficult, has he not, Helga? Uh, Okay, okay, we'll talk later, okay? All right. You get to that place because you persevere. And I, I'm, I'm so concerned about that because I think how we've seen Mary just drifted down in the church and we just, it's just as people hop, away, hop around from relationship to relationship, it's also kind of that way sometimes in regard to church and, 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 and just other things, other relationships and hobbies and things. And we just, we just move around and, and there's not a perseverance. And I believe that you have a more stable life when you learn to work through instability to a place of stability. And I think it's just really, really important. And I just want to call us and remind us, you've got, if your marriage is going to make it, you've got to have a long-term idea about, okay, 
there's going to be things happen. How do we make this? And the first thing that God calls the husband to in the text here is this, is it is a call to togetherness. Look what it says in verse 7. So Peter writes these words. He says, likewise, husbands, you're going to be, you're going to have to submit, but here's what I want you to do. Live with your wives. Let's talk about this. This word live in the Greek means to dwell with, to hang out with, to be together with. It's a present active in the Greek, and it means this, to be continually dwelling together with this person. A godly husband lives with, dwells with his wife, aiming for togetherness and intimacy and connection. He is not to be looking for a roommate. He is not to be looking for a bed partner. But he is to live with his wife, desiring intimacy and companionship. And he understands Paul's teaching on marriage. This is Ephesians 5.28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body. And as a man would, would want to feed his body and protect his body and, and all that. He who loves his wife loves himself Paul says, and so a godly husband understands the essential reality of unity and oneness that God has established for the husband and wife. And so Peter says, listen, you have an unbelieving wife, you're a believing husband, here's what the call is upon your life, you are to be at home. Two ideas with this, one is be at home. What does that mean? It means this, that we Give every bit of our time, of our, of our time away from our work of thinking about, I need to, is my family okay? Is my wife okay? You know, I have a job and we've got jobs and we've got to do things. But husbands to think about, when I get home, I've got to be at home. And for we men, we have a hard time with that sometimes. We get home and, and our, we, uh, my mind's got to unwind. Um, Today was stressful, but we've got to set that stuff aside because the call is that when we are at home, we need to be at home. And I believe that one of the things that's needed for a strong marriage who, where you have a Christian spouse or a non-Christian spouse is for the husband to dwell with a wife, to be at home physically, to be at home spiritually, to be at home engaged in the responsibilities of leading the home. So the idea here is this togetherness be at home. It also connected to this, dwell with your wives in togetherness. It has this idea, this mindset of staying together. Marriage is to be seen as a all time for all our married days until death parts us dwelling together. That is the call. And the, make, the mistake that many men make is this. Well, I'm just going to be a great provider and that'll be enough. It's not. The call of the mandate here is be at home. Be a good provider. Work hard for your family. Take care of your family. But do not substitute money for time. Don't do that. God's call here is this. Have a mindset of being at home, togetherness with your wife, with the idea of staying and being together. So it's a call with a mindset of staying together. And this cannot, husbands, be passed off to somebody else. It is our responsibility to embrace this. I said earlier, five times, 
husband, a man is commanded to love his wife. That's in Ephesians 5.25. It's mentioned twice in verse 28. It's mentioned in verse 33 and then Colossians 3.19. There's a mandate on us to love our wives. Now let me just talk about one thing before we move, one more thing before we move on to the next thing. A husband needs to remember that God has given us authority over the family, but that does not mean that we are to be an authoritarian. That's not the call. God has given us authority, but that authority means to lead and to be a servant and to lay our lives down in the care of that. It's not an authoritarian thing. So a husband who's a believer and has a wife that, has, that doesn't believe in Jesus and has rejected the gospel, if he just, just pounds her verbally and ridicules her because she doesn't believe, she is never going to get to the place where she's going to believe. She's going to continue to reject that because nobody wants to do that. What she wants is, is she wants somebody who's committed, even though she's rejected the gospel, that you're going to love Jesus and you're going to love her anyway, regardless of how she is responding to the gospel. It's a big, huge call. I'm not in that situation, but that's the mandate that's here. I've got a wife that loves Jesus and seeks Jesus. So we're headed in the same direction, yoked together in the same direction. But if you're not in that today, I just want to remind you, God's word and God's spirit and God's power will enable you to be able to do as all that you can to help encourage your family. But see, husbands, that we are a leader and we are to be a lover of our wives. So here's what Peter says. Listen, there's a call to togetherness. That together says be at home and have a mindset of staying together. Secondly, he says this, live with your wife in understanding that is marked by knowledge. This word in the Greek is, is <clears throat> understanding that has an intelligent recognition that grasps the full reality of an object. So in this setting, it means this. You live with intimate knowledge. You know what your, li- your wife is like. You know it. You've got it. Wives, excuse us. Y'all are so deep, so complex, and so awesome, and we're so simple-minded. It takes us a long time to kind of understand the depth of who you are. And I'm literally not joking like being sarcastic. I'm saying that's really true. There is a depth that God has made to women and wives that is beautiful. It's very powerful. And we guys have a desire to understand things. Listen to me, husbands, because here's the grave mistake in this idea of I need to understand my wife. This idea means understand her needs, understand her desires, understand her dreams, understand the nuances of her life. And a guy has a desire to understand things. And what a guy will do is this, is if he has a difficulty trying to understand his wife and one day she's this, the next day she's this. I mean, that's never been the case ever in the history of the world with either one of the spouses. The husband's sometimes this way, he's different this way, the wife is that way. But the husband, he gives up in trying to understand. And he will turn to something else like a hobby or more time at work or a sport. And he'll try to understand something like that and to the great neglect of his family to the great neglect of his wife instead of knowing her intimately he knows baseball statistics but he doesn't know his wife 
And that's a tragedy for that to be true about a Christian man. That he knows a lot of stuff about everything else, but he can't really tell you about the the beauty and the depth of the wife because he's watched and he's observed and he's talked and he's asked the critical questions to learn things. And so here's what Peter says. Listen, husbands, not only do you need to be at home, but you also need to know your wife in an understanding way. And the only way, Christian husband, you're going to understand your wife is to know God and know Scripture. And then you will see through the lens of Scripture, you will see how to understand your wife. So the mandate here about knowing your wife has to flow through the commands of Scripture to know how God has made the marriage, how God has made women, and to understand the reality of that. So we live as a husband marked by an understanding of our wife. And listen to this. The world can give you a husband, but a godly spouse is a gift from the Lord. That is absolutely true, and I wholeheartedly believe that. The world today can say, here's what a husband ought to look like, and the world will offer that. But if we will be patient and wait, God will gift a godly husband or a godly spouse, and that will come definitely from the Lord. Listen to these words. This is Proverbs 19:14. House and wealth, they're inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. God gifts that wife to the husband. Live with an understanding marked by knowledge. I used to always, when I was a youth pastor, I used to always tell the student girls in my youth ministry, you ought to know God so deeply that it challenges and pushes the guy you date or the guy you marry. Know God so deeply that it pushes him to desire to see Jesus do a work in his life. So you be at home. It's called to togetherness. You live with understanding that's marked by knowledge. And not only that of knowledge of his word, but also knowledge of the wife to know who she is. And I believe a husband may have an an understanding about their wife, but once they get that, if they don't do any application with that, then it's just knowledge without any wisdom. And it's important to know our wife and then to love them. I tell you, I can see the end in sight. And my kids aren't in the room, so I can talk about them. I'll be 61 when Canyon graduates from high school. And I hope he goes away to school. Because I love my wife. And I want my kids to be around. But I'm looking forward to just time with my wife. And I think it's one of the beauty things that once the kids are gone. But here's the danger of those days. Is if you spend your life that the kids are the center of everything of the marriage and not Jesus. You'll get to that place where the kids are gone and you're not going to know your wife or you're not going to know your husband. And I want to plead with you today. Our children are precious. Look at these Llewellyn kids here. Love these Llewellyn kids. The Crosby kids. The Burling kids. All these kids in this room here today. Parents, listen to us. These children cannot be the center of the home. Christ is the center of the home and the marriage is the center of the home next. And then the children. If you get that backwards, you will chase your kids everywhere, right? You will. You'll chase them everywhere and all different kinds of things. But work on the marriage because eventually there's going to be a day when it's just y'all together. 
And if you don't know each other, you're going to have to rediscover, and there's going to be things to work through that. But work now to know one another now. And so know God, know His Word, and do so in such a way that you know so that there's not a wall that comes up that separates. Here's the next mandate. Call it togetherness. Live with understanding marked by knowledge. Knowledge of His Word, knowledge of the spouse. And then he says this, the next part in in verse 7. He says, "...in showing honor to the woman." Christianity calls men to have a high value of women and a high value of wives. And this word honor literally means to raise them up, to not put them above God, but to, to treat in such a way with such tenderness and kindness and love. And we do so because they are precious because God has made them. That non-believing wife who's married to a Christian spouse is loved by Jesus. Jesus died for her. And he wants her, as the husband does, to come to faith. And she's precious because Christ made her. Christ died for her. And she's precious because you are in a covenantal relationship in marriage. So treat the marriage, treat her with honor. And the emphasis here is this idea of being incredibly thankful for your spouse whether they believe or they do not believe, that you are in a relationship, that you've got a companion with you. But, even the, even, but when they do not believe, you pray and you pray and you pray and you live and you live and you live as an example of a transformed person. So husband's responsibility, thirdly, is to treat the wife with honor. Next part of verse 7. You fight for her. Weaker vessel. This is the verse that women roll their eyes at. This does not mean weaker emotionally. This does not mean weaker intellectually. It means weaker what? Physically. Physically. It's just a reality thing. It's not always the case, but for the majority of things, men are stronger than women. Can I tell you something that needs to come back today? And I, I watch. I watch when I go to the mall. And I watch when I go out to parking lots. And I watch to see if a husband will open the door for his wife. I watch when I come into places, does a husband open the door for his wife? We have lost chivalry. It's gone. And it needs to return. We've become so self-centered. So this idea here is simply this. She's the weaker vessel physically. So you husband, you fight for her. You stand for her. You do what's necessary to protect her. Not because she's not smart, because... God has called you to lay your life down and he's equipped you as a man to be strong and to fight and have wisdom and insight. And so the call is, husband, for your non-believing spouse, you fight for her. You stand up for her when that is necessary. Because I I know this to be true. You women are incredibly strong because there's one thing about physical nature that y'all have, that we don't have. Y'all handle pain way better than we do. We, we are wimps. I've seen five births. I would never want that to happen to my life, ever. <clears throat> it's an amazing moment that I just got to watch. I'm glad I watched it. Listen, fight for your wife. And I believe Peter's calling the husband to see his role as one who fights and protects and longs for her safety. Fifthly, as the weaker, what's the word? Vessel. This is a word that points to the Old Testament temple, and there were vessels in there, and they were used for 
sacred, watch this, sacred and divine purposes. So here, look, look, look at the call. Husbands, look at your wife even though she does not believe or even if she does believe. She is a vessel. She is a sacred divine instrument in your life to refine your life that you would be more godly. And a husband who has a wife that doesn't believe, you know what he has to do? He has to do this a lot. God, I'm praying, I'm calling out to you, rescue my wife. God, transform me so that I'm a a picture of who you are to my wife. And it refines his life and it brings a greater dependence in his life to call out to Jesus because he longs for his wife to come to know the Lord. So we need to see our wives, men, as an instrument of God, a sacred divine instrument of God in our lives, refining us to be more like Him. Those vessels were precious and they were important in the temple. And that's how we need to see our wives. Lastly, in regard to the call for a believing husband in regard to his non-believing wife is to see her as an heir of life with you. Now, I read some things this week. There's been a little bit of discussion throughout the centuries in regard to this text of, um, did Peter stop all of, the, all of a sudden in the midst of all of this as a witness trying to aim to win people in government, um, to try to win people in the workplace, to try to, for the uh, believing spouse, try to, or wife to win her husband to faith? Did he stop all of a sudden in verse 7 and just talk about Christian marriage? And the context just doesn't, talk about that so when it talks about see her as an heir of life i don't think this is talking about eternal life i don't think he's stopped in the midst of all of this to talk about christian marriage i think he's still talking about a husband now who has a wife who doesn't believe but he needs to see his wife even though she's she's not going to heaven and we'll see in just a moment in the last part of our seven what he does in response to that and what's critical but you are if you're here today and you're a, a man and your wife does not believe and has rejected the gospel, here's what I would say to you is this, is you need to see your wife, even though you don't, you're not joint heirs of eternal life, you are joint heirs of life. That means this, your home ought to be laughter. Your home ought to be a place of love, even though one spouse doesn't believe. It needs to be a place of aiming toward the future, preparing for college, for our children, What are we going to do in regard to discipline? There's an heir of life because of the covenant of marriage that you are to stay in that marriage and to fight for the marriage. And so the call is to see her as somebody, hey, we're walking through this life together even though you do not believe. And God has called the husband to that. And he is to never forget that Christ has died for her and he is to be praying for the Lord to rescue her from her sin. If he does not, if he does not, here's what happens. So look at verse 7, the last part of it. So you do all these things that, he just, that we just talked about. We talked about six of them. If you do all those things, or if you don't, he, what he says basically is this, if you don't do these things, here's what's going to happen. I'm calling you husbands who have a wife who doesn't believe. I'm calling you to live this way, to see your wife in this way. And if you don't do so, you can get down on your knees and you can call out for God to rescue her, but he's not going to listen to those prayers. 
Those prayers are going to be hindered because you're disobeying the mandate that he's given you to live before a non-believing wife. So a husband who says, I'm going to belittle my wife because she doesn't believe, and, and if she'll believe one day, then I'll treat her better. I mean, that mindset is of the devil. He should know whether she believes or not, I'm in this marriage and I'm to lay my life down for her. I'm to be transformed by the Spirit. I'm to walk in the Spirit so that she will see. And the, the text says for us that a husband who ignores all this counsel and prays, he defeats himself in his prayers because the witness of what he's longing for is completely opposite. They are Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. His prayer life models, I want her to know the Lord, but the way he lives before her communicates, I don't want her to know the Lord. And so, Peter, there's a bite of accountability here for the husband who's a believer, who has a non-believing spouse. This word, so that your prayers may not be hindered, this word um, hindered means to cut in and to interrupt. Those prayers are interrupted because of the way that you are living your life. And I know personally in my own life, when I'm insensitive to Pam, that I'm also being insensitive to God. Because when I'm walking with God, there's a natural flow out of my life that I'm sensitive to the needs of my wife. So I'm going to close with this. If you're here today in a room like this, I've been doing this a long time, think I'm kind of figuring it out a little bit. There's a lot of secret pains that walk into a church on Sunday morning that nobody knows about. A lot of secret secrets. And usually when somebody calls and says, um, we're having marriage problems, um, often it's so far down the road that it's almost already over already. Both the spouses or one of them has decided I'm done with this. And here's what I want to say to you today. Talk early if you're, if you're struggling. Don't wait until the church is the last-ditch effort to try and get some help. Get help early on. There is no shame in that. Needhams, have you had some issues along the way? Yeah. Carl and Carrie, been some things along the way? No. Yeah. Hey. Schraders, life, yeah. Just listen. Talk early. Talk early. Get connected in a life group. If you're here, get connected in a life group. What happens is, if you're here and you stay here for several years, eventually you're going to get to a place where you're going to look around and go, man, I... I don't know anybody here and we're really struggling with stuff and nobody knows what's going on. You'll have an easy tendency to just go. But I would say to you, get connected and open up your life to say, man, I've got to be, I've got, we've got to have people in our lives to help encourage us along the way. I, again, almost 30 years now, we would not have made it if there hadn't been people in our lives. Well, Maybe we would have made it. But I, one of the critical things that's happened in our marriage is there's been people along the way that we could talk to. Because, I mean, you know Pam. 
Y'all pray for me, okay? Just kidding. You know me. (laughs) The goal of our life isn't to get to the end of our life and say, boy, I did this all myself. The goal of our life is to get to the end of the life and say, look at all the people who have been a part of my life. I got here because I walked with God and I walked with others. So if you're here today, I just want to say get some help. Don't wait to the very end. Get some help now. All right? Let's pray.